When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Hey, welcome to Here For It. I'm your host, Erica Muller. Each week, we'll be talking all things life, fashion and beauty, personal development, and probably some pop culture along the way as well. Here For It is your weekly space to get grounded, regroup, and be inspired to live your best life. Because really, we're all figuring it out as we go. And I'm so here for it. Hi guys, welcome back to Here For It. My name is Erica Muller. For anyone new around here, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. I have a really incredible guest for you guys this week on Here For It. I have Sir Tim Hitchens, who is the current president of Wolfson College at Oxford Cambridge University in England. Previously, he was the assistant private secretary to the Queen of England. He has spent 35 years in the British diplomatic service. He has traveled the world to places including Pakistan, Afghanistan, France, and Japan. He's the chairman of the Daiwa Anglo-Japanese Foundation, which is a charity that funds scholarships for young people to travel to Japan. And he is also a Commonwealth War Graves Commissioner. Sir Tim is truly such an incredible human and I am honored to have had him on the podcast and to share this conversation with you guys this week. We talk about a lot of different things from his background to why he wanted to get into the world of diplomacy. We also bring in some pop culture and we talk about Prince Harry, the royal family, um, Kim Kardashian. We also talk a lot about his approach with the younger generation. He deals a lot with Uh, millennials and Gen Z at his college and his pure curiosity and encouragement to those generations is pretty incredible and he truly just wants to help everyone reach their goals and make the world a better place and so we talk about some things when it comes to negotiation how to deal with conflict Um, bringing joy into the work you do every day. He shares a little bit about some of his favorite parts of his job and his interactions with his students. I think you guys will really enjoy listening to his takes and ideas, and I think you will really enjoy this episode and getting to know Sir Tim. So without further ado, let's jump into this conversation. You've held many different titles during your time in the British Diplomatic Service. Is this type of work something you knew you always wanted to do? Well, when I left university, I really just wanted to travel the world. It was as simple as that. And I had a lot of curiosity about different cultures and different languages. So I've always wanted to go to countries, meet people that I didn't know beforehand. Uh, I had no idea where that was going to lead me. Um, I simply followed my nose a little bit um, and ended up visiting places that changed my life, changed the way I view the world. So I've always wanted to be elsewhere. I've always wanted to be curious. 
um, but I've never really had a plan for where I was heading. I guess that two things formed me. One was that my my father was in the British Navy, the Royal Navy. And so we moved every two or three years. And so in my childhood, we had lived in places like Australia and in Singapore and in Japan. So I'd seen a bit of the world and had a sense that there was a world out there that was interesting and not too frightening. And I also found that my personality was one that was very involved in conciliation, finding a way through differences. And those two things, the desire to go out into the world and see it, and the desire to find common ground and conciliate, meant that when I was thinking, what on earth do I do with my life? The idea of uh, entering diplomacy was an obvious candidate. And you studied English in college, correct? I studied English literature at college, that's right. And English is one of those subjects that doesn't lead directly to anything, but it's enormous fun because you're having the chance for three years to read the best writing uh, in the world. Uh, And it also allows you to both learn how to use language, but also interpret other people's language. So getting behind what they are thinking, people can use a phrase that covers up their thinking as much as explains their thinking. And so understanding the way through what people mean by the language they use has become really useful throughout my career. Is that something you found college could teach you? Because it seems like it could be hard to discern uh, what somebody actually means. Well, there are writers and poets who are writing about a personality that isn't them, and yet they give away things about themselves unintentionally. There are also poets and writers who are very subtle in the way they both express the views of someone else, but also hint at their own views, who are doing it deliberately. And your professors, certainly in my case, my professors were very helpful in letting me understand that through lots of individual examples. I guess the thing that is really difficult to teach, and I think this is something that is true in the US, around all of Europe, is how do you teach curiosity? Mm. Because you can teach people techniques, technology, um, but teaching them to want to learn other things, teaching them how to have an attitude towards what they don't understand, that seems to me the, the key thing. And that in in Latin, education comes from the word to to bring something out of somebody else rather than putting something into somebody else. And I think that's what the best teaching and the best education is. It's bringing things out of people. And among the things you bring out is a sense of wonder in the world. And I think one could argue that when we are very small children, we are absolutely fascinated by the world. I mean, Erica, you'll remember when you were a little girl, everything was amazing and wonderful. And then somewhere in formal education through a teenage life, you sort of focus on being cool or you focus on wondering about what other people think. And you lose a little bit of that wonder and curiosity about what's just out there. And I think when we went into one's 20s and you care a little bit less about what everybody else is thinking and more about what you're thinking, curiosity comes back in and 
when you get to my ripe old age in your early 60s, you come across people who have lost that wonder and that curiosity, and their lives are much less interesting. Whereas if you can keep that alive, your interest in life and your contribution to life remain highly effective. I love that because it almost makes it seem like curiosity is this innate quality that we are born with. And it's just our journey through life in determining, do we hold on to that curiosity? Do we lose it for a minute? Do we pick it back up? But don't you remember as a youngster, that just is the way we are as young children. And that is the period at which our brain is growing fastest our personalities are changing fastest. We're learning things very fast. And the older you get, the more you think, oh, it's taking me longer to learn this new language or it's longer. But if we've got the real curiosity, then those things become much more easy. I mean, I, I find that I do a lot of helping young people in their 20s and 30s at work to do better at their work. And I often talk about a little triangle, which is the the triangle of of you you work. How do you get your performance up? Mm. And if getting your performance up is regarded as something deadly serious, it's quite hard to up your performance. But if you have fun, if you're enjoying yourself, you learn better because you're in a slightly childlike state. And if you learn faster, you improve your performance, and that makes you better at your work. So, bringing in fun and pleasure in work is actually much better for your productivity than trying to be somehow serious and grown up. I mean, there's there's a lot to laugh at. I mean, if when we're in our professional environments, people do use language that's nothing like their ordinary day language. They suddenly start writing and speaking in sentences that are nothing like the way they speak at home. And that's a bit strange and weird and amusing. And you can see why they're doing that. They're trying to be something that they, they aren't. Uh, and so if ever you find yourself speaking in that language or writing that language, ask yourself why on earth you're doing that. Um, and then just being with people in a workplace is social. People are, you know, enjoyable to be with. And one of the great challenges of the COVID era has been that people haven't had as much that workplace conversation, the workplace jokes, the ability to read people's actions as well as their words on screen. Um, and we need to get back into you know, really enjoying the personal that comes from being at work. Yeah, that's so true. COVID definitely has uh, changed a lot of things. And hopefully we can get back to that because I think you're right. I think that human interaction is so important. I mean, I've, I've definitely found it with so I, I, as you know, run a college at Oxford University. Uh, we have about 800 students here, and we have about 200, 300 what are called fellows, so sort of professors. And what I find fascinating is when COVID came to an end, when the rules relaxed, it was the young students who were actually much better at getting back into the social environment. Um, they were slightly less worried that they were going to catch the thing. Um, but they have got back their their energy and their sense of fun, whereas the older fellows, the older professors, have been a bit more cautious, um, a little less willing to come into social settings, 
and they probably aren't able to get back into where they were three, four years ago as much as the young people. And I ask myself, why is it that young people are much better at bouncing back? Um, and I think it's because they do have a natural zest for life and a sense of the risks we need to take to live than people of a slightly older generation. Hopefully that doesn't hold people back either. You know, I think one of the hardest things about COVID was that separation and that fear. And I know it's hard to let go of. Um, maybe it is in the younger generation, just a little bit more resiliency. Yeah, I mean, I I often think when one talks about resilience in in terms of mental health, for example, there are ways in which you as an individual can become more resilient. But the best way of being resilient is to be within a community. So if it's, it, the, the data and research shows that if you are in a strong community, you deal with mental health challenges much better than if you are alone. And so it's not about whether you are more resilient as an individual, mm -hmm. just get into that community and the community will allow you to pull through the challenges. Whereas if you're stuck alone in your room or your office, you know, things can appear more serious and challenging than they need to be. And I, I find this myself, you know, my wife and I can go traveling in really quite difficult places in the world and somehow, because there are just two of us, it doesn't appear so scary. Whereas if we were doing it, either of us alone, it would be much more scary. And there's no logic to it other than that company makes you stronger and company allows you to be more relaxed to take risks. That makes so much sense. I completely understand that. Yeah. And speaking of traveling, I know that with diplomacy comes a lot of travel. I know that you have had a lot of interaction with other countries and cultures and people. Um, here in the United States, pop culture, you know, paying attention to celebrities, television, movies, music, podcasts, um, is a really big part of our culture. Are any of those things that you took into consideration when you were traveling? Well, I think that it's very easy to be a little bit too serious about a country or a culture mm -hmm. and say that all that really matters are things that were written 200 years ago or music that was written by you know, a serious environment. And sometimes, sometimes the things that appear most lighthearted can give you a real understanding at a quite a deep level of, of a country. Now, I'm not saying that when I was in Japan, Japanese pop music gave me a deep insight into what made the Japanese culture tick. But the fact that such a significant number of people enjoy the, the sort of the lighthearted fragility of a pop culture does say something in a Japanese context about their attitude towards culture as a relatively fragile and transient thing, rather than something that is always going to be solid and with us. And I think when, I, um, when I'm trying to gauge as a diplomat what's going on in a country, it's very easy to get stuck in things which are truisms, things that people thought they understood about a country 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but are no longer true, things that have moved on. And particularly a country like the United States, which moves very, very fast, and somewhere like China, which is, again, moves very, very fast. 
somehow pinpointing what where the latest trends are without getting caught up in the the superficial nature of some of these things is quite an interesting challenge so that mm -hmm. there is it has to be said in a pop culture um, an interest in the surface of things um, a lack of ability to maintain attention on things for a long time that is 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 natural is fun um but is not particularly long lasting but then there are other aspects of pop culture why things appeal why things move fast how they move fast that does give you a very good sense of whether a culture is flexible how what it's responding to what the deep uh, the, the deep trends within a society are and so i think as a diplomat you avoid pop culture at your peril because it does tell you something both about current culture but about the next generation of people who will be running the country mm. that's really interesting i'm curious to know if in the uk pop culture yields uh that same sort of influence that it does here in the united states for example uh you know kim kardashian immense influence and not just in the united states really actually all over the world she does um but i'm curious to know if over where you guys are if you if you notice that i do have a daughter who's 30 and a son who's 29 so i know a little bit about about this and i'm operating in an environment that is full of people in their 20s i would say that um britain is very interested in pop culture that ever since the Beatles or before, you know, this has been a country which has defied expectations from overseas that we are sort of old and conservative and fuddy-duddy, um, and which has been able to set trends and ride the crest of trends. And uh, I think our young people find that pop culture is a, is a very effective way of thinking about who they are, what their identities are, um, I think there are problems sometimes in looking across the Atlantic to the United States and thinking that the kind of cultural answers from the US apply to us necessarily, because we are different under with different locations. Um, so, for example, if I move on to uh, questions of ethnicity in the US, the kind of popular culture around black culture um, Hispanic culture, Asian culture, white culture are different sets of issues from the variety of cultures we have, where we have we have a black culture, but it tends to be a culture that is Caribbean and African. We have a big Asian culture, but that culture comes from South Asia, from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Um, and so the way those cultures operate are very different, and one shouldn't draw lessons on those from the states for our particular situation. But then if I'm, you know, if, if I were a woman age 25 trying to make sense of gender issues, a man age 25 trying to make sense of gender issues, the kind of discussions that are possible in the US are as relevant to young people here as they are to you over there on the other side of the Atlantic. So I think there's a lot that we see of each other mm -hmm. and course the internet means it's very very easy to get hold of immediately 
the kind of the Kardashian culture or whatever else is, is is trending in the States. It comes over to us within a day or a week, rather than when I was in my 20s, it took a no, weeks and months to come over. That makes total sense. And I think there is this natural, um, to use the word curiosity again, curiosity between us over here in America and wondering, you know, what is it like to have a king or a queen and to live um, under that sort of reign? And then I would assume that maybe for you guys as well, there's a little bit of that um, vice versa where, you know, I see it constantly when I log into Netflix, The Crown, um, Meghan and Harry, there's always something um, pushing us towards what is it like over there and i would assume is probably happening um from you guys back over to us i mean certainly the the royal family is a very interesting phenomenon it's from a british person it's something that plugs into a centuries-old tradition and there's something about it that is at the heart of our government i mean the, you know the the queen and then the king they have no real constitutional power and yet the powers of what's called the crown are now held by elected governments but they're still go back to an original crown whereas the u.s constitution obviously arrived in a completely different sense um and i think that though our tabloid newspapers magazines love to follow the royal family and whatever's having happening they're not quite celebrities in the way that US celebrities are celebrities. And you know, they they for one, they find it they have a tradition of not um attacking anyone who attacks them. So their relationship with the media um is slightly more cautious and reserved, though Prince Harry at the moment is in the High Court in London this week um defending himself against British newspapers. So maybe he's about to change the nature of that. Uh, so there's maybe a, a misunderstanding of the nature of celebrity mm. that the monarchy represents, because there's something quite serious underneath it. Um, and I also suspect that if you're sitting in the States, you know, the monarchy is a wonderful thing to look at over the other side of the Atlantic. But also, you're quite pleased not to have it yourself. You're very happy being a republic and electing your head of state as the president. Um, and it's a it's a it's an easy thing to be interested in because it doesn't lead to any constitutional questions for you. Um, the other thing that the monarchy is is wonderful at is being generational. So every generation has got a different generation of the monarchy they're interested in, mm. and it's a family. It's not a political party. It's not a corporation, and therefore, as a family, it works like families do, which is full of love and affection, but also a bit of dysfunction as well. And that makes it more interesting than a political party or a corporation. Yeah. It's pretty uh, fascinating as an American to look at how other countries are governed um, and how you know the media takes hold of what is interesting about those um, ways of of doing things. I don't know if you see it with students, if they're maybe as fascinated by the royal family. I think in, in certainly in Britain at the moment, it is 
not cool for somebody in their 20s to be interested in the monarchy. Interesting. If you ask young people, um, as has happened quite a lot in the last year, because we've had a lot with the death of the Queen and then the arrival of the King and the coronation, there's been lots of polling about what are young people thinking. And I think a lot of young people don't quite, in Britain, don't quite see the point of the monarchy. Mm. Now, I personally think that's exactly where I was when I was in my 20s. You know, what's the relevance? Why on earth do we have, you know, what, what relevance is it to me? Um, and it's probably rather like one of those, you know, slow brewing beers or wines that as you get older, you understand why it matters and it starts to matter more to you. Um, so I think young people are in Britain are less interested, perhaps, than people in their 20s in America, for whom it's fundamentally a question of celebrity. That's fascinating. I love that answer. I wanted to ask you one more thing about uh, your time as a diplomat, because part of your job, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, includes a lot of negotiation. Uh, what do you think is the basis of a successful negotiation? I think you need to deep down believe that compromise and moderation is important and difficult to achieve. So if you if you believe that the world should be split into two different tribes who can't talk to each other, then you'll never be successful as a negotiator. You have to believe that it matters and that there is common ground between us. And I personally, that's part of my personality, but it's part of my sort of set of principal beliefs and my experience also that even though there can be very loud voices in public describing how people are different and disagree with each other, there is more that unites us than divides us. It sounds very simple to say, but it, it's a really important point. Um, and at the moment, I do feel it's quite difficult in public to talk about what unites us and what divides us, because Again, driven by the media, driven by politics, we like to say how different we are. But actually, you know, why can't Democrats and Republicans say that on 90% of issues, they have the same op op you know, view of things? Um, you then have certain occasions, like when you've got Ukraine and Russia at the moment, where it's really difficult to think of any interests they have that they share. And that means that now is probably not the time to negotiate between them. But there will come a time in a year's time, perhaps, when they will both actually be ready to work out what they have in common. And people need to be ready and prepared and done their research for those moments. So I think as a diplomat, you spend a lot of time preparing the ground for the moment when two sides are ready for compromise. And so timing is timing is all. You need to be prepared for it. And when that that gap in the clouds opens and a little bit of blue sky appears, you're ready to go into it and look for compromise and believe that that is, it's the highest form of civilization. I think it's, it's if you look at the great cultures in the world, they are cultures that believe in compromise, not in division. Would it be fair to say that in those moments you are essentially looked at as the peacemaker? Yeah, absolutely. But what I would say is that there are situations when peace, it's not the case that peace is always the right answer. There are moments when you have to fight for your position. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be as, a, as an individual, you have to stand up to a bully, or it means that you as a country, you need to stand up to aggression. 
But then there are other moments when you need to be ready to go in there and make peace. And that's when people like me are probably ready and waiting. How do you then approach conflict? Well, the first thing I, I mean, I have a personal aversion to it. So over my life, I've had to become better at it because if you're averse to conflict, other people can then push you around and realize that you don't like conflict mm. and push you into a corner. So you have to be develop the skills to push back if people are aggressive at you. Um, but then you have to realize that conflict can feel good in the short term, but it never feels good over an extended period. And that people who are aggressive, who are bullies, are normally doing it because there is some other weakness or insufficiency in them. Uh, and you never see a really confident person who has to be aggressive and conflictual. They, they can all, the wisest people I've met, the people who are most confident are the ones who don't need to do that. And the people who are the most conflictual and aggressive, the ones who are hiding something, some insufficiency that uh, they want to compensate for. So, you know, if you come across somebody who is conflictual, they're doing it for a reason, and it can sometimes give you confidence yourself to know that they're doing it for a reason of weakness, not for a reason of strength. Mm. I love that because I think that goes back to what you were saying towards the beginning and uh, understanding English literature and what people are saying and what do they mean and what are they hiding or what are they not showing? No, it, absolutely. And understanding that if somebody's using a particular kind of language, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly what they're thinking. It's often a cover for what they're thinking. And if you can see through that, you can understand where they're really coming from. Mm, I love that. What has been your favorite part of your job? My current job? Um, so, I mean, at the moment, last five years, I've been working in Oxford in this college. And to be honest, it, it is meeting the people in their 20s and 30s who are busy doing research into whatever their subject is, be it quantum computing or in medical research, who are just amazed at the discoveries they're making. And so I say to them, what have you discovered over the last few months? And they say, well, and then they go and describe this extraordinary thing that they both extraordinary thing they've discovered, but they're really enthusiastic about. And people in their 50s and 60s are perhaps less enthusiastic. Perhaps they feel they've got less to discover or they're discovering less. Um, whereas in their 20s and 30s, some of the brightest people here are just full of wonder. And it's almost childlike wonder. They just can't believe they have been in the right place at the right time, working with these other brilliant people to discover you know, a new way to support um, someone with dementia or a new insight into how a particular computer program works or a new understanding of how to get the best out of children in a particular social setting. And those things, it's just wonderful to, to say, what are you working on? And they say, well, it's amazing. And just stopping and listening to what they're doing. It's just a great experience. I love that so much. The first time we met, one of the things I noticed about you right away was your curiosity and your genuine interest in the younger generations. Um, what's your biggest hope for the younger generations? Well, I think the younger generation, um, 
they are the ones who are going to save the planet. You know, they are the ones who are going to be um, the, the the leaders. And my greatest hope, my honest greatest hope, is they do find the the wisdom and the foresight to deal with the climate emergency because you know my generation and the generations before us haven't been effective and good enough at that. And these things do change fast. I mean, people's attitudes change fast. And that would be my my biggest request, that they they do find ways to get us out of the mess that we're heading into. Um, and there are plenty of, it's not all doom and gloom. There, there are plenty of examples of things that can be done. So again, my college is the first college in the whole of the UK that is zero carbon. We've just got rid of all fossil fuels and all our energy comes from solar and from, from wind and electricity. Um, so these things can be done. They just need people with the self-belief and the enthusiasm and the hope to make them happen. So that would be my big hope, that, that they can solve that issue. I mean, plenty of others, but that's that's the one that I would regard as the key one to deal with in the next 20 years. Yeah. Well, with your leadership at the head, I'm sure you are inspiring many, many people to go out and do that. That's very kind of you. That's very kind. Thank you so much for being here today. It's a great pleasure, Erica. Lovely to talk to you. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.